I don't know how many of you have favorite cartoons, but uh, one of mine, I don't get to see it anymore, is uh, Wizard of Id. And my favorite cartoon in that whole thing shows uh, a scruffy guy that's in a, he's, they're two guys and they are in a jail cell and they are uh, suspended. They're, 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 uh, they're actually fastened to the wall by their, by their ankles and by their wrists with uh, iron bands holding them on the wall. I mean, there's no way that they can move. And one of them's got this real excited look on his face. And he says, now this is my plan. And this is the thing that gets me about that is when you look at him there, what in the world could he have worked out? I mean, he couldn't move his hands. He couldn't move his feet. He was just stuck there on a wall. And uh, but he you talk about the eternal optimist. That was that guy. But he had a plan. And as I was looking at the story of the Mount uh, and, and, and the story of the Transfiguration this morning, all of a sudden I just saw plans, plans. There's uh, God's plans that are revealed here. And then there are man's plans that are revealed here. Peter is one of the people that jumps out as we look at this. And uh, shortly before this, whenever uh, they were uh, walking along, Jesus started telling his disciples that he was going to have to go to Jerusalem and die. And that just didn't fit with Peter's plans. And so he started fussing at Jesus saying, no, no, you can't do that. That just... That's just, that, that just doesn't fit my plans. You know, we've got to do something different. And uh, remember what Jesus said to him? Get thee behind me, Satan. Because you don't know what you're talking about. And so then we see him up on this Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus has just started to glow. A light coming forth from him just like from the sun, the glory of God shining forth from him. And then here's Moses and Elijah with him. And the disciples, the three of them are there just golly. You know, they had just never seen anything like that before. It was incredible. But Peter always felt like he had to do something and he got a plan. And he said, okay, Lord, this is, it's good that we're here. This is a really good thing. Oh, man. And if it's okay with you, I'm going to build a tabernacle for you and a tabernacle for, tabernacle for Elijah and a tabernacle for Moses. Jesus didn't rebuke him that time, did he? But somebody did. God himself spoke from a cloud of glory and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. 
listen to him. And that is a message for the whole church, you know, because we are so prone to think that we have to have a plan that we've got to uh, react in some way to what God is doing. And that maybe somehow we need to try to get God to do some things. And he's telling us, this is my son. He made that clear. This is my son. This is the Messiah. This is the one I want you to listen to. Forget about your plans and start trying to understand mine. And so that's what I want us to look at more than anything else today is God's plan because his plan is made so clear on the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, there are are some people that think, oh, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are two different gods. And uh, we don't, in fact, I've had people very close to me who said, we don't, we don't, we don't pay any attention to the Old Testament. That's an old and vengeful uh, way of looking at things. That's an old God. We don't, we live out of the New Testament. You should be living out of the Bible. It's one book, one book. And uh, we see, and this is what I want to go over with you today, is what God's plan is from cover to cover in his word. We have 66 books in the Bible, 35 different writers in the Bible, but there is one author, one author. And uh, whenever we are looking at this and we look at the Mount, at the, at the Transfiguration, we see if we look through the Bible, how this moment affected the disciples. In fact, Peter, when we read on in Second uh, Peter, the, uh, let's see, where is it? Uh, oh, I'm a page too far over here. No, okay, yeah. It's in Second Peter, the first chapter, beginning with the 16th verse. People back then, at that point in time, it's shortly before Peter died. They are starting to say, this is, these are just a bunch of fairy tales that people said about Jesus. These, he's like Paul Bunyan. He's not, you know, they're making, they're, they're stretching him out really out of proportion. And, uh, so Peter is addressing that. And he's also addressing the fact that we need to be aware that God has a plan. God has brought us to this point and he's going to go on through and Jesus is going to come. He's coming back and he's coming soon. And so he says to these people that he's writing to, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. You need to understand 
that the people who wrote these things in the New Testament, they saw these things. We have firsthand accounts of what we should be about. These aren't things that people just compiled over the years and, and made things up. Peter's trying to make it clear. We saw this, folks. We heard this. This is for us. This is for us today. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, Peter left off the listen to him part, didn't he? I don't Maybe that just stung too bad. I don't know. But uh, here, uh, Peter is saying, we saw this stuff. We're not just making this up. All three of the synoptic gospels, they call them, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have the account of the transfiguration. And people will tell you that uh, John doesn't mention the transfiguration. But let me show you that he does. He does in the first chapter of John, in the uh, first, uh, first few verses. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, beginning with verse 14 of the first chapter. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten son of the father, full of grace and truth. It affected John too. It affected everything that he wrote in his gospel. It meant something to him. And he's saying here, we are eyewitnesses to these things. So we have the fact that God in his Bible has a place he reveals a plan. And this is what I really want to share with you this morning, because some people, they don't understand uh, the continuity from the beginning to the end of this book right here. And let me tell you, you don't study the Bible like I took these literary classes in, in college where you'd study Shakespeare and you would analyze it and you would break it down. And that's fun to do. But isn't it much more fun just to follow the story? Like the story of Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, there's star-crossed lovers and there's these themes and all this sort of stuff. But it's a story. The Bible is a story. And you need to, and it's, it's a message to each one of us. And if you uh, try to just approach it verse by verse, right out of the chute, analyzing every little bit of it, you're going to miss the joy of what the Lord's trying to get across to you. And if you've never really read the Bible, before you begin reading it, I would suggest that you get a 
children's Bible stories book. I discovered this a long time ago uh, whenever our kids were young and we would have devotional time in the evening and we'd take the children's Bible stories book that we had and we'd read a story and then there'd be questions. And so we'd go over the questions with our kids and it was great. Our kids learned the Bible from cover to cover through these children. But you know what I learned from it? Was the story went from cover to cover. It was all interrelated. And I didn't see the connection. I had learned all the stories as a kid in Sunday school. But I mean, you've got one, you've got little baby Moses in the basket over here. And then you've got the uh, Jesus being born over here. And then you've got uh, uh, a leper being healed. And the stories were disjointed. And because of they were disjointed, I didn't get the full impact. But if you'll take, if you've never read the Bible, don't say, oh, I just don't understand it. I just can't read. Take the children's Bible stories book, start reading at the beginning and just read a story a day. And by the time you get to the book of Revelation and the new heaven and the new earth, wow, it's all connected. And you'll see people in the Old Testament that are related to people in the New Testament. Uh, we read about Rahab, the prostitute. She wound up being one of uh, Jesus's several great grandmothers. You know, there's just uh, all this interconnection between the both of them. And so uh, I just want to say, read it, but don't just analyze it. That can do just take all the life out of it. Let the Lord speak to you through it. Start by understanding it and uh, by understanding the big picture. And then once you get the big picture, then all of a sudden you can start recognizing different things you never saw before. But the scarlet thread, the story of Jesus. Remember, Jesus told the Jewish leaders, you search the scriptures. And those were the Old Testament back then, the law and the prophets. You search the scriptures and in them, you think you have life. But they're telling you about me. And so uh, I want to show you just real quickly. This is going to be just mind blowing really fast. Um, I'm sharing this from a, uh, an article by Skip Heitzig. And uh, it's from his book called Bloodline. And uh, it's, uh, it shows how this scarlet thread of redemption connects one end co of the Bible to the other. History hinges on a single pivotal event, the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. There, God's great redemption of mankind was accomplished, a rescue mission that culminated at the end of Christ's three and a half year public ministry, but began before the world was even formed. A great Bible teacher uh, from the past, William Evans, said, cut the Bible anywhere and it bleeds. The Bible 
uh, is stained with the blood of Jesus on every page. Every book in both Testaments, new and old, Evans saw. The atonement is the scarlet cord running through every page of the entire Bible. It is uh, red with redemption truth. Jesus himself intimated this connectedness, this bloodline of redemption. After his atoning death and resurrection, he approached the two unnamed disciples who were consumed with discouragement as they were walking down uh, toward a town uh, or to a town near Jerusalem. Disillusioned over Jesus' execution, they didn't recognize him, uh, nor did they expect what they were about to hear. They tried to explain to this stranger what had happened, even though they were unaware of what had really happened. Jesus was risen and he was standing right there with them and they're trying to explain to him what they don't think he really understands. He told them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? The author Luke then explained, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, the two who met with Jesus up there were Moses and Elijah. Moses gave us the law. God gave us the law through Moses. Elijah was the epitome of the prophets. So there's the law and the prophets on the mountain with the Lamb of God who's about to be slain. So do you see the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament? And what did they talk to him about? Luke tells us what they talked about was his departure. So here's the giver of the law and the representative of all the prophets talking about the cross. It all goes together, people. And that's one of the things that the Lord is trying to show us on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now then, in Luke 24, 36 through 48, we see this again in a different uh, light. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and uh, said to them, peace be to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones that you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy, and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and he ate in their presence. I'm so glad of that because, you know, uh, it says 
I, I, I like food. I like to eat. Don't y'all like to eat? It's a good thing. And so here Jesus in his resurrected body eats honeycomb and fish. And uh, so that shows us that in our resurrected bodies, we can eat. And that banquet table is going to, at the end time, going to have food on it. It's going to be good. Okay? So I just want to throw that in there. Uh, and also, we know from the Bible that God loves barbecue. Do you know that? You ever notice that? Whenever uh, Noah uh, got out of the ark, the first thing he did was he offered a burnt offering to the Lord. And it said that the Lord was pleased with the smell of it. Barbecue. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it good to know that sort of thing? Then he said to them, these are, let's see, it's, and he took ate their presence. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Now, remember the scriptures back then was the Old Testament. And he showed them all through the Old Testament him. Then he said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached to his in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things. There's God's plan. Remission of sins and repentance should be preached in his name. That's the church's main job is to make sure that the people understand Jesus died for your sins. There's nothing you can do to remove them, but you don't have to worry about it because Jesus has already paid the price. All you have to do is receive what he's done. As I told you last week and I've told you before, it's not your sins that are going to keep you out of heaven. It's your unbelief. So uh, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever works real hard, is that what it says? Tries to be real good, is that what it says? No. Believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, the first two post-resurrection messages cover how Jesus was anticipated and he predicted the Old Testament. It was anticipated and predicted in the Old Testament. Uh, Some of the things he might have highlighted would have been like Abraham's near sacrifice of his son, on the very mountain where Jesus, the Son of God, would die centuries later. He probably told them how the exodus from Egypt prefigured our exodus from the slavery of sin and made uh, and, and, and the freedom being made possible by his death. You can almost hear him describing the blood sacrifices of Leviticus, the servant prophecies in Isaiah, 
predicting Christ. And so many Psalms long considered to be messianic in nature. The actual scarlet cords show up in Scripture with some very interesting overtones. I don't know if you've ever noticed this in the Old Testament. The garments of the high priest and the curtains of the tabernacle in the Old Testament included scarlet threads. You ever notice that? Many have seen these usages as prefiguring the atoning work of the future Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, through his shed blood. When an advanced team of Jewish spies scouted out Jericho and almost got caught, uh, the prostitute Rahab helped them to escape through her window by scarlet cord. And they promised her on the day of Jericho's destruction that she and her family uh, could be identified for rescue by hanging that rope from her window on the city wall. The scarlet cord, the color of blood, was a sign of her faith and led to her salvation. The cord for Rahab worked much like the smeared blood on the littles of uh, the doorposts of Jewish homes in Egypt on the night of the Passover decades before. You see, the main theme of the Bible is Jesus. He's the hero of the story because his sacrifice on the cross provided salvation for all of us. That scarlet thread of redemption is interwoven through the entire story and can be seen in the many accounts of biblical history. And they tell his story. History is his story. It weaves together the hides of the animals slaughtered in the Garden of Eden to provide garments for Adam and Eve. It snares the ram provided for uh, in Isaac's place on the Mount Moriah. It stains the doorposts of Egypt and trickles down the altar and the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple in Jerusalem. That blood-red cord binds the, New, the Old Testament to John the Baptist's introduction of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the beams of a blood-drenched Roman cross at Golgotha, where Jesus declared, it is finished. Though Jesus had a miraculous birth, and though he performed many nature-defying wonders, and though he taught the most sublime truths ever proclaimed, none of these provide salvation, and none are the focal point of his ministry. The epicenter of all history, especially redemptive history, is the cross. Bethlehem's baby was born to die. The Bible even refers to Jesus in its final book as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, before God made the world, he had the plan.
already in place, a plan to save the world. And why blood? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. We know the New Testament authors were aware of this, but how much literary estate they devoted to the details surrounding the crucifixion. That's why the scarlet threads leads all the thread leads all the way to the cross. In the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are only four chapters devoted to the first uh, 30 years of Jesus' life. The same books provide 85 chapters about his last three and a half years, the span of his earthly ministry. And of those 85 chapters, 29 are dedicated to the final week of his life. And 13 of those 29 chapters focus solely on the last 24 hours. The events of Jesus' last day leading up to and including his violent crucifixion take up 579 verses. All pre-New Testament history looked forward to that atonement act all post-New Testament history looks back to it. Jesus wanted to make sure that his followers never forgot that. And that's why he instituted the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus said, as he gave the familiar elements of the Passover meal, new meaning, in heaven, I believe that you're going to see Jesus still has those wounds marking that event. And that touches me because we have a God who understands how tough it is down here. He kept the reminders right there. When Jesus was in his resurrected body, he still bore those scars. He instructed his doubting friend Thomas to touch those lesions on his hands and side. Forty days later, he ascended in that resurrected body into heaven itself. It's amazing to think that the only works of man that will be seen in heaven are the wounds inflicted on Jesus on the cross. God has a plan. He had a plan before this world even got started. And that plan involved you and it involved me. And he made a play above a place on his cross for you and for me. And so we need to make sure that we're familiar with his plan. A week and a half ago, I read where you know the, we formed in trying to to get back on track with his plan. We've gone with the Global Methodist Church instead of going off in a bunch of other plans that are getting so far away. But the a young lady in the Global Methodist Church uh, posted something uh, that just made me scream inside. 
It said, you know, I've just been noticing that most of the traditional believers are, are older and uh, that the global Methodist church is going to be made up of all these old people. And, uh, and, and it is not going to have much potential to grow. And so we need to start thinking about that and we need to make some plans on how to get younger people into the church. I had to respond. I hate to do that. I hate to do that. But you see, basically, that's the institutional thinking that has gotten the United Methodist Church way off in left field. The thing is, we got to get more members. We got to do stuff that attracts more people. So let's water down the gospel. Let's uh, throw Jesus out the side door and let's have some fun and make it like a coffee house in every service, you know, and have some music that really gets them, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And what's it done? It's costing people their souls. When John Wesley got started, he said, we have nothing to do but to save souls. Folks, we're back on track now. We're back with God's plan. And it's exciting to be aboard with that. God is starting to move. He's starting to draw people to him in different ways as people have been unfettered and free to talk about the cross and to talk about, about Jesus and to talk about salvation and those things. And so I will encourage you, get in touch with his plan. Get on board with his plan. No matter how old or how young you are, there's a place for you in his plan. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.